a long, long time ago. It's only been eight months, really, but it feels like eight years. I asked my mother a question on this show as we tried to figure out how to keep her and my dad safe. Last question, if I told you that you could live for five or ten years guaranteed and not get sick, but you couldn't go upstairs and play with Maggie, what would you choose? Oh, I'd probably go upstairs and play with Maggie because I wouldn't believe you. (laughs) The answer she gave back then was after two weeks of lockdown. So imagine how she feels now. Imagine how seniors who haven't seen their children or their grandchildren or their friends in eight months feel as much of the country heads back to lockdown. Now that Toronto, where I live, is back on its toughest restrictions, I'm back on my own mission to convince my parents to comply with as much of that as possible. I'm doing this, as I told my mom, because I want you guys around forever. And she replied with, well, we're not gonna be around forever. So it's foolish to pretend that if we lock ourselves away, we will be. This is a choice facing hundreds of thousands of Canadian seniors and their families right now. It's going to be a long, lonely winter for all of us, but doubly so for our older loved ones who live alone or in care facilities that used to be vibrant and engaging, but now consist of closed doors and safety protocols. Even if they don't get COVID, some of these folks won't be around this time next year. Don't they get a choice as to how much the risk of the disease is worth sacrificing the time they have left. Are we giving them that option? And while our current approach may absolutely be necessary in some cases, are we also looking closely enough at the harm that loneliness and isolation is doing to our seniors and weighing those two things against one another? We say that we're doing all that we can to keep our older loved ones safe. But are we doing enough to keep them well? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Christina Frangu is a freelance writer who specializes in health and science, and she looked into the toughest question of the next few months for Canadians, for Maclean's. Hello, Christina. Hello, Jordan. Why don't you start just to uh, maybe put it on a level that people can relate to, because I think everybody can relate to this a little bit, by telling me the story of George Spaulding. Who is he? What happened to him? So I met George Spaulding because of a photo that his daughter posted on Facebook. Um, It was a picture of George looking out a window, and he is an elderly man with white hair and gray eyes, bit of a wrinkled forehead, and he has his hands to his lips, like he's either blowing a kiss or that he's maybe seen something that is upsetting to him. It's kind of unclear when you first see the photo, but it really connected with people because it has this feeling of sadness and and loneliness and, and sort of speaks to the distress that I think a lot of families are experiencing standing on the outside unable to access their older loved ones. And so his daughter Frances had posted this photo and it wound its way to McLean's and eventually to me. So George Spaulding was 96. He was living in a retirement home in Cochrane, Ontario. He'd been living there for about five years. 
he and his wife, Grace, had moved in together. Um, and his Grace passed away about three weeks after the two of them moved in. And, and their kids really worried about how George was going to do in a retirement home. Uh, he was a lifelong outdoorsman. He'd worked outside his whole life. He, um, he he told me about how he was late to his own wedding because he had to do some emergency milking of the cows. Hmm. Even at 90, before he moved into to the, the care home, he was still chopping wood outside for he and Grace. And he only stopped because this, the smoke for their, their, um, their wood stove was, was too hard on her lungs. And so his kids really didn't know how this was going to go to have him there by himself. But he really flourished. He, he really took to it. He loved the social aspect of it. He told me he used to count his steps to, to get back and forth to the dining hall. And he probably walked about a half mile a day. He was a real sort of shining star at their dance nights and, and carnival um, and he was always keen for bingo and all the social events. And so right. he was doing great. And, and we should all hope to be in the kind of shape George was in at 96. And then... Yeah, and then yeah, uh, COVID. and then everything changed. And so, you know, that remember back to those, those days in March and April where we were so worried about PPE in our hospitals and in our, our long-term care homes. And the, re the immediate response was just to go into to lockdown in, in many retirement homes. And so that happened in, in George's and all the sort of shared meals were canceled and, and the dance nights and meals would be dropped off outside his, the door of his apartment. And George had a, a long time cough, but this was identified as a possible case of COVID and he couldn't get tested for it. So he just went into extreme isolation for two weeks. His meals were dropped off outside his door and then he'd go get them and pick them up. He really had no interaction with anybody. Um, and he just stopped eating um, over time. And when I asked him about it later, he said, you just don't need much food when you're not doing anything. And he ended up in the hospital yeah. in, in June, and his family couldn't get in to see him. And that's when Frances took that photo. She was, her dad was on a ground floor room in the hospital, and she stood outside. And he said to her that he didn't want to go back to the apartment in the retirement home. He'd been on a, a wait list to get into long-term care for some time, as are many Canadians, even before the pandemic. I think it was about 40,000 Canadians on wait lists to get into long-term care. And George just felt like he could not keep going in the apartment by himself. He would rather stay in the, in, in the hospital. And so his kids were in a real quandary. What do you do? Do you stop paying for the apartment? Do you um, coax him into going to the apartment? They didn't know what to do, but he was in charge of making all his decisions. And after many talks with, with um, authorities about where, what uh, was available in long-term care, they made the decision to move him into the back into the apartment and hopefully he'd be in long-term care soon. But he never really bounced back. And, and he and I spoke when he was home uh, by FaceTime. And he said to me, you know, you've just got to do what, what's right. And, and this virus is a bad thing and we, and we need to, to be responsible about it. And he said, you know, I'll get by. But he just never came back to being himself. And uh, he 
he, about a month after he was discharged from the hospital, the first time he was readmitted and he passed away in July. That's a tough story to hear. Uh, and yet I don't think uh, it's, it's all that unique this year. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I wanted to start with that story and then I'm going to read you something. You already know it. Uh, that was in your story that his daughter told you. All these people that might have a week or a month or a year left, would they really choose being so alone and not getting COVID or would they actually choose some risk? Now, can you explain um, how you tried to approach that choice in telling this story? Because it's really the key question and I think why this story resonates with so many people. I think what Francis said there is what so many Canadian families are dealing with, that we are all connected, you know, um, older Canadians aren't separated from the rest of us. They're grandparents and parents and professional mentors. They are, um, they provide a lot of the unpaid caregiving in this country. And so protecting our seniors, this line we hear over and over again, can't just mean completely shutting them off from the rest of us. And so families across the country are trying to figure out how they manage these risks, what is going to be best for them in the months months ahead. Um, and so I spoke to a number, I just wanted to hear what families were doing, how they're, how they're managing. And, and I spoke to people across the country, how they're dealing with the issue of kids going back to school. That was a real challenge for a lot of families. Um, how they deal with rising cases in their communities. And everybody is having to sit down and, and do these calculations. And it's, it's not enough that older Canadians are separated from their families until they're, they're in palliative care because they are at the very end. I want to explore uh, both sides of that choice. So first, um, I know we've heard about it a lot, especially at the beginning of this. But we've been learning for 10 months. So tell me what we know now uh, about just how badly COVID impacts the elderly in Canada compared to the general population. Well, the mortality risk for the elderly is much higher. And so, you know, for people in their 80s, it's about 15%. It's 8, 8% for people in their 70s. Um, and, and it just sort of goes up incrementally. But at the very highest risk in Canada are for those living in long-term care. And that's where the mortality rate among people infected with COVID was about 35% in May. Um, if we look at how Canada compares to the rest of the world, we're doing terribly. 80% of Canada's COVID deaths have been in people who lived in, in long-term care. That's double the average in other OECD countries. Wow. And I should say, those are, those are figures from the first wave, but we certainly see no indication that it's going to be any different in the second. I'm going to poke at that um, a bit because I think this is, is part of the quandary that, that we're talking about, which is, you know, even uh, an incredibly high mortality rate is still, you know, 15, 20%, which is, is unacceptable and, and a lot. Um, and I don't want to go down the road of kind of repeating economic or Republican talking points about this, but a big one that we heard about the lockdown 
is that the cure can't be worse than the disease. And that's the thing that I keep coming back to uh, in this case when we're talking about locking away uh, our elderly loved ones. And what do we know about the impact of just the the isolation and the loneliness that that's created on seniors? Right. Well, well, it's enormous. And, and before I even get to what's happened with COVID, I think we need to acknowledge that older adults in Canada already have like high levels of, of loneliness and are quite isolated. Mm-hmm. And so COVID sort of landed on a situation that was already in crisis and has turned it into a tragedy. So we have people who are becoming, the geriatricians I spoke with spoke to this, that we have people who are becoming increasingly frail, increasingly depressed, um, who are, there's, there's an increase in, in falls. They might experience advancing dementia or, or like George, maybe they're just eating poorly. And I've heard that from so many families I've spoken with over the last couple of months that their loved ones just aren't eating. Um, so, so we are seeing that. And then we're also, there's been reports of increasing, um, financial fraud over seniors because there's a lot of scams that target lonely older Canadians um, trying to get money out of them and it, and it's they're more likely to fall prey to that if they're extremely isolated. So I think when we talk about the cure being worse than the disease we need to talk about the cure having more options than just being a complete lockdown and isolation of our seniors. Well, when you speak to doctors who work with the elderly, uh, what do they tell you about that? What kinds of conversations are they having and what options are there? They're really, um, and again, I'm not uh, inside this. Uh, Both my parents uh, still live on their own, but it it really seems like there aren't a lot of options beyond isolation or risk. There There are options there are things we can do. And I actually found speaking to, to physicians for this story really helped me figure out how I can continue to connect with my parents and, and see them. They also live on their own, but I was really concerned about bringing risk into their, their home. Mm-hmm. And so they, one of the things that I started to think about is, is let's talk about risk and let's talk about this in terms of like a kind of advanced care planning we might know what our parents want if they are dying we might know what what they want if they can't speak for themselves and and they're at at the end of their life but what do they want now what is most important to them right now and if that's some element of seeing their family what can we do as families to make that safe for them? If you have kids, maybe that means that you didn't put your kids in school this year, but that you everyone washes their hands religiously and you have socially distant visits with your grandparents. It's, it's about sitting down and really talking to people. And I think one of the other things that I hear that always comes up when I speak with geriatricians and, and I really want to make this point is that Canada's older adults aren't one single frail vulnerable entity. You know, mm-hmm. there's a whole mix of of people and abilities and and health statuses and and living situations and like I said before these are 
people who many of them are still in the, the workforce. They do a lot of the volunteer work in Canada. And so we really need to acknowledge how connected we, we are to uh, across age groups in Canada. Like we don't, we don't have the option, nor should we, to, to shut out people over the age of 65. How much of this, too, is us wanting uh, what's best for us versus what they think might be best for themselves, you know, because obviously I want my parents to be here forever. <laughs> um, and I know that in the early days of the pandemic, they were totally on board. But if you told uh, my mom or my dad that, you know, they could they could escape COVID, but they wouldn't be able to see their granddaughter for a year, I, I know that they would choose to take that risk, even though I might not want them to, yeah, you know? Yeah, and we've seen it in our family, family too. And we don't get to make those decisions for our parents or our grandparents. Mm -hmm. We make them with our parents and our, our grandparents. And so I think sitting down and really talking about what's important to them. And then if, the, if they are going to be seeing their grandkids, what do grandkids and, and parents of those grandkids do to make sure that they have minimal contact with people other than their grandparents. And I, I think the most important thing is that we don't get to make these decisions for older Canadians. They get to make them for themselves. A lot of the uh, troubling parts of this pandemic has been the downloading of uh, safety to a matter of personal responsibility, I think, which we've heard um Again and again. And so it's one thing for, for you know, me to, to sit down and talk with my parents and, and you to talk with yours and try to figure out uh, ways that we can be safe. But what are larger organizations saying? You know, what are advocacy groups recommending? And what can governments do? Because this is a problem that goes beyond a personal level, I think. Well, I think there's, there's two parts to that. There's the things that they wanted before the pandemic. Right. And, and we need even more now. Um, and then the, the pandemic-specific things that we need. And the first one, and, and this would overlap both of those, is that we need better housing for seniors. We need more affordable housing options with better health care. We need much more staffing in our long-term care homes. And we need more supports for the people who work in long-term care homes. We had months between the first and second waves to manage this. And there's no indication that we had any success in doing that. We have many older buildings that are for our long-term care that don't have enough room for people to socially isolate. So that's one that we could, could change. There are, again, before the pandemic, there were 430,000 Canadians who had unmet health care needs at home. The older Canadians. And so if you think about that, that's a population of Halifax. And so we need better supports for people at home so that they can continue to age in place. And that was a big problem in the first wave of COVID, especially again, getting back to the shortage of PPE. People didn't want healthcare workers coming into their, or home, home care workers coming into their homes who didn't right. have masks and gloves, but they weren't a priority for PPE. Um, but we need more affordable options for people to, to be cared for in their homes instead of going from 
a home to long-term care to a hospital, like to have have the hospital as the place where you get the, the majority of your health care. Like people are teetering on the edge of being able to stay in their homes and we could help if they had more supports. Beyond uh, what governments and and groups can do, you talk to a ton of people for this piece. Tell me um, some of the hopeful, enterprising stories you heard about uh, families who came up with ways to, to support their elderly loved ones uh, and still be safe. One of my favorite people that I've interviewed throughout the pandemic is a woman I met for this story. And she's Reverend Diane Parker. She lives in Halifax and she's a retired rector, but she's still performs weddings and funerals. And she also has a clown ministry where she dresses up like a clown. And so she's she's widowed. She's a, a two-time cancer survivor. So she's she is at risk for COVID and she's also, you know, at risk for being isolated. And so, but she just thought of so many creative ways to make sure that she was still connecting with her community. And so it started with putting window displays up in her living room throughout the pandemic that people would come by and look at. And then as soon as the snow melted, she had someone come and build what she calls her COVID deck which is a lower level of her front deck where she can sit on the top level and someone can sit on the bottom level and they're outside and they're safely socially distanced. She also has a happy stick that extends two meters and she uses it to pass things to to her neighbors and she makes treats for them and they drop off groceries for her. Um, she and her neighbor have, start, have started a beehive. And as she said to me, <laughs> he's the drone and I'm the queen. Um, and she's, you know, she's someone who has spent years doing advocacy work to prevent isolation of seniors. And so she recognized the, the risks of this situation. And she was incredibly proactive in finding ways to, to prevent that. Now, it hasn't been easy. She has grandchildren in Calgary that she was supposed to come visit. Um, she has performed funerals where she can't hug people, and she finds that really, really hard. That's how she connects with people. But she is continuing to seek out workarounds that make sure that she's connecting with her community. <laughs> the last thing that I want to ask you is kind of about another thing uh, that comes up again and again in your piece. And we talk about it on this show fairly often. You know, when, when I have a guest on and we talk about vaccines and we say, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel and this time next year we'll be looking at a vaccine, hopefully, and that kind of stuff. And and that's intended to be hopeful. But I think if if you're 75 or 80 or 85 and you're locked in your house, that light at the end of the tunnel means a very different thing. It's a very different frame of time. How, how do you manage that when you're you're talking to the loved ones in your family and, and not and not wanting them to be conscious of, of how differently uh, you both might view that time? It's interesting because the the older people in my life are thrilled about this light at the end of the tunnel. And I am for them too. Um, I think that at least for Pfizer and Moderna, they have not excluded older people from their vaccine trials. 
So there's a lot of reason to believe that this vaccine will be able to be used for people who are 70 and 75 and, and 80, and that the government of Canada will have a strategy that prioritizes getting vaccines to the people who need them most. And that would be that high-risk age group. And so while all of us continue to be in this painful sort of pause in our, our lives, we can all keep working to find ways to make it okay until we get to that light at the end of the tunnel. I hope so. And I hope we can find uh, creative ways to do that. And I hope that governments can help. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you, Jordan. Christina Frangu is a freelance writer who specializes in health and science. That was The Big Story. For more from us, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us wherever you get podcasts, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. Doesn't matter. You can talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN or in our email, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, all lowercase, at rci.rogers.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. <laughs>